The education team for Jackson Family Wines proudly brings you these podcasts for your listening enjoyment. Good day, everybody. This is Barry Dodds, the Fremark Abbey Winery Ambassador, and I have the distinct pleasure of uh, speaking with Christy Melton, our winemaker at Fremark Abbey. 138-year history this year, and in that mix, you're the eighth winemaker. It's kind of extraordinary. Do you think about that often? Absolutely, Barry. I have a photo of Josephine that sits in my office that every morning when I walk in, I see a photo of her to remind me of all the hard work that she put in to establishing the winery. And then all of the hard work that's been going on for 138 years to get us here. And every day, every decision I make, I want to make all of those people that have come before me proud of what we are today. And I want to see this winery survive another 138 years. And so I'm doing everything I can to make that possible. It's amazing to hear that, Christian. Of course, we all knew that all along. It's uh, impossible to ignore legacy, and uh, it's hard to stay away from it when it's offered you. So uh, very happy that you are our winemaker at Fremark Abbey. I think the wines since you started have been incredible. Um, you are a vineyard person um, as well. I think that's sort of stepping into the role of uh, all those wine growers at Fremark Abbey. And is that true? Absolutely. I mean, the, the vineyard is where it all starts. And and to get to work with the vineyards we have and craft these wines is a real privilege. How did wine become something you wanted to do? Uh, well, it definitely wasn't what I initially set out to do. And I think that's the beauty of life is you can change course at any time you decide. I was born and raised in Texas around agriculture, but more the uh, four-legged kind rather than the grapevine kind. And uh, I got a degree in animal science, but I was also very interested in medical research. So I started working in the field of immunology. I was employed on the East Coast at the National Institutes of Health. And one very cold winter in the middle of a blizzard after digging my car out of the snow, I said, you know, I really miss being out working in agriculture, I miss the tangible aspects of it. And so I took all of my science education and put that into a degree at UC Davis in the Masters of Viticulture and Enology program. And then I began working my way up through the industry. My first internship was at Iron Horse in Russian River making sparkling wine. Then I went down to New Zealand where I worked at Saracen Estate. It was the uh, largest biodynamic winery in all of New Zealand. And then I came back to California and I worked at Saintsbury Winery in Carneros, crafting a Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Syrah before moving on to Clodoval, which is another classic Napa Cabernet house. And I was there for five years. We did everything from Cabernet and Chardonnay to Zinfandel Merlot. And then I started with Jackson Family Wines in 2016, working on a few other brands in our portfolio before starting to work with Ted in 2018. Your first big wine with JFW was, uh, was that the bootleg? Um, I made bootleg fortress um, and all of the Kendall Jackson Bordeaux wines. So the Cab Merlots, the blends, and I launched the Vintners Reserve Rosé program. It's encouraging to know that we have a winemaker that stepped into a role, a legacy role. Uh, the, the person holding that uh, position prior was there for 42 seasons. I'm amazed at how that proves 
to sort of secure your place, I think, in wine history is uh, is to create legacy and to not mess with it. It's actually one of the things, the brightest things that we talk about uh, whenever we talk about free market is the ability to stay the course and not to change up uh, what you're doing. You you started out uh, competing with the best wines in the world, which were classic driven, old world style, and we're still doing it. It's hats off to you guys. I'm uh, Everybody's so happy that Fremark Abbey has not uh, changed. And of course, we also have a long history with some of our vineyards. I mean, we've been working with uh, the Red Barn Ranch for close on 60 years, or maybe over 60 years. Uh, Beauchet, we started in uh, uh, in 1968 with first trials and then the sycamore trials began in 81 so there's nothing really new in terms of vineyards but how important are those two vineyards to Fremark Abbey and all of the uh, Cabernets or Bordeaux that we produce well Barry they're absolutely um, critical I to me they're kind of the lifeblood and the soul of Fremark Abbey um, with Boucher being you know one of the first single vineyard wines made here in Napa it's iconic and those vineyards are so special to us walking those rows thinking about all the people that have walked those rows for 40 50 60 years um and the the place they hold in history for Napa Valley i think is really uh, paramount to the success we have we work with a number of great vineyards but i feel like Fremar Gabby's uh, home was based in Rutherford around those vineyards um since the 60s and and it's a real honor to work with them now and uh, yeah, so we started with Boucher in 1968 was the first conversations that we started having with uh, John Boucher. And um, and then finally, we, we well, firstly, we, we didn't settle on it, but we, we make a uh, Margot blend of uh, Cabernet and Merlot. And that's been the case uh, since the get-go um, because the original sourcing was going to a, a wine at BV, the uh, George Latour Private Reserve Cab, which was a Merlot Cabernet blend. So very little has changed in terms of varietal plantings at Boucher. Do you see that changing? I don't. Um, we're actually, we do have to do a little bit of replants just as a vineyard gets older. Um, its vigor declines over time. We've replanted Boucher a couple of times since we've started working with it. And so um, I just took out two of the older blocks to plant Merlot because the, the Merlot needs some regeneration. By total vineyard acreage, we're about 15% Merlot, but what makes it into the resulting Cabernet Boucher blend is between 5 and 10%. So that's real critical to our blend. And we We've got to keep it healthy and producing in all the ways that make great wine. And then when we uh, we travel uh, just about a mile down uh, Highway 29 and we've got the Sycamore Vineyard um, <clears throat> off of uh, Bell Oaks Lane. And the Sycamore Vineyard has actually changed somewhat over the years. Vines went in in 1976 after John Bryant purchased the vineyard. It had been a, a pig farm prior to that. And uh, he started with just Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. And then in the 80s somewhere after the successful planting of that beautiful Merlot vineyard uh, that we just replanted at Sycamore, um, he added the third varietal, 
But it wasn't until 2008 when John planted a small, uh, less than two acre uh, Petite Verdot vineyard, which he told me was he wanted to make a Mouton blend, which obviously the Mouton does not contain any Malbec. Um, do you think that could change at Sycamore since it has had a history of different varietals? You know, Barry, and anything is possible. What we're really doing um, when we're looking at vineyards and their composition, though, is taking into account the effects of climate change and, and how we need to work around that. We're really, really happy with the makeup of Sycamore right now. So I don't have any plans in the near future of changing that, but we'll see what happens with nature. You know, we've, we've got to adapt and evolve with it um, and not in spite of it. And so nothing's off the table, but right now expect a lot of consistency in our future. And it's it's that's the thing that has been awesome since the Jackson family purchase in 2006. It seems to me like those two wines, Boucher and Sycamore, are getting more and more, uh, well, firstly, higher scores, but they're also being um, accepted as uh, as kind of Napa Valley benchmark uh, for single vineyards. It's it's something that single vineyards became important again because you're trying to emulate Bordeaux, so you're trying to emulate that terroir aspect by going to single vineyards. So Boucher and Sycamore being a mile apart and on the same side of the Rutherford bench, um, or on the bench rather, same side of uh, 29, what do we do in terms of farming and trellising to ensure that the fruit that's coming off of these vineyards are actually different? Absolutely. Well, there's a number of differences, um, you know, in addition to the varietal makeup, um, the soil types are very different. I don't think people know, but half of the soil types in the world are found here in Napa Valley. Um, and so it might not seem like one to 1.2 miles is very far away, but it's kind of a world away for us in terms of, of growing grapes. The Boucher Vineyard, it gets a little bit warmer, but it's got a much higher water table. So we've got some nice vine vigor there. We put it on a quadrilateral trellis to really kind of keep those grapes cool, um, really get the ripening to slow down. It's still some of the earliest Cabernet we pick for our portfolio in uh, early September. So we, we we get the vigor up, we get the um, the vines producing, and then we let them naturally, as the water table begins to drop in the warmer part of the season, really kind of regulate themselves down to slow down um, for a nice, even ripening. Now you go south to Sycamore, it sits a little little closer to the base of the Mayakamas Mountains. So it gets a little more afternoon shade. It's a little cooler. Um, it's also on much more gravelly soil with less water availability. So with less water, we get less vigor from those vines. We put it on a vertical trellis um, that keeps the vigor a little more um, linear. It And we get really nice ripening off of both sides. Sycamore comes in between one and three weeks later than Boucher, just due to that, that shade. It's a little longer ripening window. And so all of that is really critical to making these wines different. In the winery, we don't do much different in terms of pump overs, extended maceration, barrel regimes. We keep it pretty consistent between those two vineyards. So the differences you taste and smell smell in the wine are truly coming from the vineyard and not from things we do in the winery. That's fantastic because that really is the benchmark of a vineyard. A vineyard is uh, making wine in the vineyard. By the time you guys pick, I mean, I say this on your behalf quite often, correct me now if I'm wrong, but by the time, uh, by the time you pick grapes, 
you already know pretty much where the scores are going to land based on fruit quality. Is that correct? <laughs> Barry, if that was totally correct, I'd be in the stock market if I could guess things <laughs> like that. Um, you know, we 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 have a hand in crafting the wines. Um, we do get a semblance of the vintage based on the ripening conditions in the summer and the, and the tannin profile of grapes when they come in. Um, and then it's really up to us to make sure that we preserve that and that our winemaking style doesn't, you know, we call it sitting on the fruit, you know, to to really let the vineyard sing and not be too heavy handed in what we do. So um, we we know a good vintage is is coming, you know, by the time we pick the grapes. But there's plenty of room for for things between um, then and when it goes in the bottle. Sure. But I mean, it's comforting to know that, oh, we're picking Boucher this morning or tomorrow we're picking Sycamore. It does. Yes. It, yes it's it's comforting to know that the raw materials are so cool. And, and that is, and we, you know, when we speak about not going with trends, there's a big trend to overripe fruit, higher alcohol, Cabernets, uh, low sense of place. I think that's what you lose, don't you, if you overripen? Absolutely. And, you know, for those of us that have been around a little while, we've seen the styles swing all over, you know, from from more reserved and balanced to overripe. And I see some people now doing um, what I would even consider underripe. So what we do here is we make that really consistent, hallmark, balanced, timeless style. And the way I describe it is you know, we're such a classic house. Think of other classic brands, whether it's Mercedes, Chanel, uh, Rolex. The things that they did in the 70s are not exactly what they're doing now. There's been an evolution, but they are still timeless uh, indicators of quality. And so that's what we're always going to do here at Freemark is we're going to respect the vineyard and the grapes. Um, we're going to make balanced, timeless wines that are really drinkable upon release, but you can put down in your cellar for 40, 50, 60 years if you choose to do so. Yeah, that's uh, it's incredible stuff, Christy. It's great to talk to you about it. Now, we've got a new little project that you're uh, beginning to work on. I think you've spoken to this uh, on several occasions already, but let's get it on the podcast. we got a third single vineyard coming. Tell us about that and uh, what vintage are we looking for for the first release? We do, Barry. This is super, super exciting for me to shepherd into one of the new single vineyards in our portfolio, which we haven't done in a long time. So going back to that, we'll, we'll always be classic, but we never stand still. So we've got this great vineyard in Oakville. Um, it's right on Highway 29. We've named it Colina, which is Italian for hill. Um, we've got this beautiful stony outcropping of a hill in the middle of the vineyard. Um, and it had originally been called Colina de Sassi by a previous owner. And so we we had a tip of a hat to them, but also this, this rocky sort of nature of the soil right along Highway 29. It sits right across from the Tokelon Vineyard, which some people might be familiar with. That that's got great soil. We have the same. And so what we wanted to do was show an expression from another appellation that we hadn't done previously. We put some into an Oakville blend in 2015 and we really liked the wine, but we said this is such a stellar site. We really need to showcase it on its own. It's got really great dark fruit characteristics. There's a really awesome savory note that's very graphite like and the tannins are very present, but super integrated, um, a real great expression of the Oakville Appalachian. How do the soils in Oakville differ from the soils in, in Rutherford? 
Yeah, well, it goes back to there's a huge variety of soil types in both of those areas. So the portion of this vineyard that I like that's going into the Colina is very gravelly. It's super low vigor. And so the berries coming off of it are very, very small. I know you and I have talked about berry size difference between Boucher and Sycamore. Sycamore smaller than Boucher. These ones at Oakville are even smaller than that. And we have very low yields to, due to that. It's a you know two tons an acre, maybe each vine has 10 clusters on it maximum. And, and so the intensity of characteristics that comes from this low vigor soil is what really surprised me. Rutherford, again, we talked about the difference in soil type between Sycamore and Boucher. You, you can get some high and some low vigor soils, but it's a lot of alluvial fans on the benchland in Rutherford. And what we've got here is a little more gravelly with some clay loam into it. So they, it really makes some differences in the wine. Yes, and uh, the fact that we always are considering all of that there and wanting to keep that aspect in the wine, which is why we stick to our guns of uh, uh, Emily Pickerel called it restraint. I think restraint is a good thing, especially when you have our kind of climates. Uh, what do you think of that idea? Absolutely. You know, to, to me, balance in a wine is super important. And, and to get that, you have to be very careful about ripeness and about winemaking techniques. So I kind of think of it as like a, if you imagine a beach ball with, a, you know, each section of that ball being a different color. If you ask someone what what's the color of the beach ball? Well, they are all in equal proportions. So tannins, mouthfeel, aromatics, alcohol, acid, all in balance so that one doesn't overshadow the other makes for those really beautifully balanced wines that we strive to achieve. So I want to touch a little bit on uh, your first baby at uh, Fremark Abbey, the Chardonnay. I can remember the conversation. I can remember uh, uh, it, it was kind of, uh, I would say, a little bit uh, scary to think or contemplate of changing how we make a Chardonnay, especially since we had that great story of not using any ML for so many years, which was in itself an answer to uh, the many white burgundies with high acids. That was the way we had to get into the door. But, you know, 50 odd years of uh, Chardonnay making went by, went by and uh, in the 80s, Chardonnay went off the charts. And uh, the popularity of Chardonnay was very much connected to the ease uh, the easeability of drinking it. Uh, you you could have it in a golf cart, on a tennis court, at a meal. So Chardonnay itself sort of took a took a turn towards the uh, not as much food, but more of a just a classic enjoyment of a glass of wine, which always is going to be a little nicer with a softer acid. So we introduced a partial malolactic in 2018. That was your first wine uh, for Fremark. Uh, how do you approach that percentage of mellow? It really depends on the vintage. Is it a hot vintage? Is it a cool vintage? Is it a shorter ripening window? Is it longer? I've been working with Carneros Merlot, or sorry, Carneros Chardonnay for over 10 years. And I took a look at what we were doing at Fremark. We did the non-malolactic style, but our when we developed that style, our vineyards were based in Rutherford, which were much hotter. Um, they did not have the cool evenings that we get from the marine influence down in Carnero. So it really seemed like a natural fit to be 
incorporating some malolactic into our fermentations. And it does vary by year, but in general, it's between 40 and 60%. And I make those decisions at uh, harvest time. When we pick the grapes, they come into the winery, we press them, and then I send out workhorses, seller, and I pick which lots are going to go through malolactic and which are not. Um, so it's not a, you know, one lot goes through it partially or the whole blend does it partially. I, I put the pieces of the puzzle together as we're making the wine and as the lots are, are being tasted coming out of the press. So um if it's a high acid year, I do a little more malolactic fermentation to kind of round it out. Um, if it's a low acid year, I'll do less um, just so that we don't lose all that great freshness. Because what I love about Chardonnay, where I gravitate toward is, you know, some days I want a Chablis with dinner. Some days, um, you know, I'm I'm sitting with friends on the porch and I'm just having a glass of wine. You know, Barry, we, we ladies, we kind of want it all in life. And I said, I think that there's a way you can make this wine where it achieves both goals yes. in the same yeah. wine. And so that's what I'm I'm trying to do with this wine is it's still got freshness and acidity. It still pairs really well with food, but you can also just have it on its own and enjoy it for what it is. I th I th and that's the feedback <clears throat> that we are getting from uh, everywhere we pour the wine. You're doing a heck of a job with that Chardonnay, Christy. I have to say I've eaten a lot of my words uh, since 2018, and uh, I can keep doing that happily because this new Chardonnay that you're making is world-class, off the charts, the best Chardonnay that we've been making uh, in our history. Uh, the the No Mallow Chardonnay still has a huge spot in the storytelling opportunities that I have uh, because it spells out again, this legacy that we created wasn't just to make some wine for people showing up at the winery. This was really to establish a you know, a typical Jess Jackson approach of we're not in this for 30 years. We're in this for the hundreds to 200s. And we already in our 138th. So pat on the back to you. You're making an incredible Chardonnay. And uh, the Cabernet scores are doing well. The wines are beautiful. They're so gorgeous. I honestly tell people, you know, these wines, if we could find the technology to add little legs to these wines, we could probably program them to walk into accounts because they don't need any support other than themselves. Fantastic job. Thank, thank you for the compliment, Barry. I, I really appreciate that so much. Now, we are always in the wine industry since the beginning, are always going to experiment with uh, different winemaking techniques, et cetera. But that's not as interesting, I think, to most people as what the vineyard stories are. What other vineyards are you working with that are, that are exciting you these days? <laughs> there, there's always some berry. Um, there, you know, we we love working with great growers and great estate fruit, and it really gives us the opportunity to try new things. Um, no developments or progress are made without experimenting. So, um, we're doing one really cool thing. We've got a great estate vineyard up in Calistoga. But with what's happening with the climate, we realize Cabernet might not be the best thing to grow on that site. So we've pulled out uh, over half of it and we're planting Sauvignon Blanc there. And that's super exciting for me. I, I love our Sauvignon Blanc. You know, we always sell out of it um, months before the release of the next one. And so to secure some of our supply and to really benefit from the soil and the warm climates up there, we're doing that. I've got some great growers here in Rutherford. Um, we haven't finished making 
drinking those wines yet from the last vintage, but, but there's some new things, um, here and there. I'm always looking for new partnerships, um, to make wine from great spots. Yeah. That Sauvignon Blanc issue or a problem that we have is everybody loves Napa uh, Sauvignon Blanc. I think a lot of it has to do with, we've always made great Sauvignon Blancs in Napa Valley. This is essentially the best kind of Bordeaux you could possibly farm. Um, but I think also that the uh, catastrophe of the 2021 vintage in, uh, in New Zealand helped along the popularity of uh, California Sauvignon Blancs. I think people are actually aspiring towards more of a choir of voices in Sauvignon Blanc than just uh, grapefruit, gooseberry, and dare I say it, cappy. So we trellis to achieve lower pyrazines. Is that right? Um, we do. They are on a quadrilateral uh, trellis in most cases. Um, that really gets the dappled sunlight in. Sunlight in the right dose is what Sauvignon Blanc needs to develop those tropical flavors and minimize those green ones. And, and that's the style I like. So um, we manage the leafing before harvest and, and the sun exposure quite precisely in order to achieve that which is always a challenge at the end of the year because it can get very hot. So, uh, but we do the things, we do the things to the vineyard that we should be doing. And then you hope for the best as we always do, right? Weather is weather. Yes, absolutely. And if I could control that, once again, I'd be in a different position. Um, yes. So we just have to adapt around the weather. One of the many things we can't control in this line of work. Anyway, Christy, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for being on this. The reality is Christy is following in the footsteps of seven other winemakers who helped develop uh, the legacy of winemaking at Fremark, the style, the philosophy. It's always going to be vineyard-driven. It's always going to be uh, vineron-driven. The winemakers are wine growers. And of course, we're always looking for opportunities to improve and uh, to change. And yes, we can change. Sometimes it takes 50 years before we decide to change, as it was the case with the Chardonnay, but it's happened. We are making one of the best Chardonnays in the country right now. The Sauvignon Blanc sells out from the warehouse uh, inside of 30 days these days. And so uh, it's happy news that we've got some more Sauvignon Blanc coming. The only wine we haven't spoken of today is Merlot. But I think Merlot, we need to have hushed tones and more hallowed halls. We should talk about Merlot next time, Christy. Thank you so much for being on this edition of Bud Break. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Christy.